the old world is ending, and we have the opportunity to rethink everything. This is a show about the structural problems in our world and the real solutions that we have today to transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse into a collaborative and sustainable futuristic society that serves all life. You may think it's an impossible dream, but the alternative is an inevitable nightmare. We're your hosts, Zachary Marlowe, Matt Holton, and Amanda Smith. And together, when we can move past this economic absurdity to come together and actualize our collective potential to create something completely new, we are Moneyless Society. It seems like the cursed phrase, human nature, is the final argument against any societal improvement. It's a fool's magic bullet to shoot down anything that benefits everyone. And it's manipulated to say we can't give people a better life or loosen the bounds of our controlling, distrustful, and unequal society because human nature has some base and unshakable violence within it, a careening drive toward destruction, chaos, and selfishness. The tragedy of the commons, where anytime things are nice and everyone has equal access, someone will get lazy or take more than they need and leech off society spoiling it for the rest of us. Because it's human nature to take more than you need, to compete and connive and to engage in shameless violence and exploitation. Which is funny because that's exactly the outcome of our current system of capitalism and its central guiding principle, that it is in our nature to act in self-interest and to encourage this at every turn to make it our central value through the invisible hand of the market, magically lift all boats. One of the guiding lights that keeps us pushing onward to a better world through the chaos and flagrant violence and inhumanity that has overwhelmed the world today is that our fundamental understanding of who and what we are is wrong. It is not in our nature to exploit and destroy our own home and to wage war on our own species. If that was our inborn drive, we wouldn't have made it this far. We are social beings. That is our primary adaptation to the challenge of nature. And it is not the law of the jungle to pillage and plunder and destroy just for the sake of it, to ruin your own habitat. To quote a meme, if one monkey hoarded all the other bananas while the rest starved, we would study it to find out what went wrong. But when a human does it, we put them on the cover of Forbes. Our base conclusion, which the social sciences have roundly proved is that we are environmental beings, born half-formed to adapt to our changing environment. As we come to the last episode of our first season of Moneyless Society, this is today's topic, human nature. Today's guest is a great personal friend and a great RBE activist, Professor Jeff Cates, who just completed his master's in sociology. So, uh, <laughs> time's running out, uh, oceans are on fire. Jeff, Let's get to the bottom of this. What, what is human nature? Well, the topic of human nature obviously is quite huge, right? Uh, that is uh, quite an interesting place to start, I would, I would say. Um, I don't know if, if you are all familiar with the work of Robert Sapolsky. He's an anthropologist and a neuroscientist from Stanford University. And he gave a description of human nature um, that I think is the most poignant I've ever heard. And he said that the nature of our nature is not to be particularly constrained by our nature. We have more social variability than any species we've ever come to find. And so if there is anything that we could call human nature, it's the, our ability to adapt and change to given environments. 
And I did, and then as a sociologist, I really um, like that definition because a lot of what sociologists is talking about is the way in which our behaviors are socialized from the culture we're brought up in. And so for me, that would be the, the best way to um, begin to look at human nature, um, but it's specifically how it relates to the market and money systems. There'd be two books that I would recommend everybody probably read to get up to speed on that. Uh, the first book I would recommend is a book called The Great Transformation by a guy named Carl Polanyi. He was an anthropologist. And, and what he details in that book is the great transformation from uh, societies that did not use a market, which in, in our terms of using the term market, what he was talking about was the production of commodities to be bought and sold for profit. Human civilizations just didn't work like that for uh, most of human uh, existence. And the way in which that particular culture, which it really is, uh, the market is a certain kind of culture, right? Uh, that was really forced upon people in many ways. And so this particular market culture that he was talking about, Carl Polanyi, in his book, was that most people that lived in rural areas or indigenous groups, um, they had a much different way of treating each other um, and producing things and distributing things to each other. Um, in a way in which Marshall Salins, uh, anthropologist, also calls a gift economy, where there was no quid pro quo between people, right? You know, if we live in a community together and you do something for me, um, I will do something for you later, but it isn't right there in that particular moment. Matter of fact, if I gave you something in our community and you tried to give me something back immediately, they would see that as rude. That wouldn't actually be something they would think was, they would think you're trying to cut ties with each other. And so that entire mentality of trade that, that we talk about today in the market actually was something that people generally only did prior to about the 15th century, really only did with people that they didn't know or they were enemies with or they were uh, getting ready to go to war with. So this whole introduction of this market logic was actually uh, built on a basis of tension and violence. And it's, it's an interesting history, but I, I think what Carl was trying to say is that how people used to live um, really, this market culture was spread uh, largely by England um, in around the 16th century, I believe, is what he was uh, describing that book. I have the book over here. I can get it out. But um, what he was talking about was that in an early industrial revolution society, there were industries that were actually running out of labor because in these early industries, when the Industrial Revolution was first happening, uh, these uh, industries were brutal. Um, even Carl calls them satanic mills. Um, where people were just worked to the bone and like worked uh, long hours to, uh, to death and almost death, losing hands and fingers for running these big machinery. Um, so they had a labor problem. They, had, they couldn't keep people working. So they had these things they called enclosures where they just said, these new areas and these rural areas of England, you all now owe us a tax that you weren't paying prior to this enclosure. And this tax can only be paid through money that you would get by submitting your labor to these industries in town. And so it forced these rural people who were surviving just fine without uh, wage labor to have to go work in these factories to get enough money to pay the tax to the king. And so that's one way the market actually spread throughout the world. And so it's a fascinating history um, to learn about, but it's also one of those things where you kind of realize once you read stuff like that, that this whole idea of the market wasn't like, we were like, oh, feudalism is a really shitty idea. Here, I got a better idea. Um, it's just not how capitalism spread across the world. Um, it spread through force and violence. It wasn't like some rational decision people were making on what was better than feudalism. I feel like we're your students already. And on that note, um, I believe we're speaking with a professor, right? You, you teach in this vein. Is that correct? Yeah, I teach sociology at Boise State University, and I just got hired at the College of Western Idaho uh, yesterday. So 
congratulations on both of those things. One of the things that you were saying, you, you mentioned Marshall Solon's uh, original fluent society study, basically. Yeah. That's something I'm a big promoter of. And you made the note that in the reciprocal relationship people had within those types of tribes and communities, um, it would be seen as rude or a severance of relationship to automatically reciprocate a service or a good. Is that right? Could you expound on that a little bit and, and how that contrasts what we do today, how, how, how the kind of reciprocal relationship we have today is... Um, very impersonal versus one that's based on, I would dare say, collectivism in which people know that in a community, if like I give you a basket of tomatoes, um, one day down the road, you're going to fix my roof if it leaks kind of thing, you know, like it's just a given. You know, the, the first thing I always like to, to talk about to expand on that is it's really hard for us to conceptualize how different the world used to be prior to um, the spread of what we call capitalism today. Um, it's such an embedded part of how we think about human relationships that it's almost difficult to think that people really didn't quantify what was owed to each other, right? Like these aren't, people weren't writing down ledgers. Like you gave me tomatoes two years ago. Now this calculates the three shingles on my roof two years from now. <laughs> like people just didn't think of each other that way. Um, and it, it's, it becomes difficult to even describe how the world used to be because of where, how we are so enmeshed in a world where everything is commodified, right? Um, even your very being is commodified even beyond your control with all this surveillance capitalism stuff Absolutely. that goes on. We are the product. Yeah, yeah. If you don't know what the product is, the product mm -hmm. is you, right? I was just going to say that uh, I've, I've been listening to a lot of uh, David Graeber's talks and uh, hearing him talk about the ways that uh, the history of money is so intertwined with violence yeah. that uh, some of the first instances of quantifying uh, social relations is in like if you kill someone or if something if, if you commit some crime or you do something you know deadly so it's just like I'm just it just really makes it abundant to me the violent nature of this relation and how antisocial it is because it's like if you um, he talked about uh, this anthropologist who uh, came to this village and she uh, people everyone in the village came and brought her all these gifts and she was just like what do i do what do i do and and they said okay you can't give somebody yeah these are gifts you have to give something back though you know you have to keep this sort of this tension of this social tension there this connection this kind of web of of debt but not debt as we know it as in you know the debt of a slave but you know this just the sort of you know i need you you need me this this essential interconnectedness that we have so they told her you have to give them something back but it can't be equivalent in value because if it is you're saying i don't want anything to do with you I don't want, you know, I don't want there to be tension. I don't want to be needed by you. I don't want you to need me. So it's it's like the very precondition of our entire existence where everything has to be this is, you know, supposedly equivalent exchange. It's like completely retrograde to how humans live and, and dealt with each other for I'll say 100,000 years, something like that. I don't know the exact you know, number of years, how long it was before money and, and uh, basically this form of reciprocity was introduced, but it's, it's inherently violent and it's inherently antisocial because it's like, I don't need you, you don't need me, I'm, I'm separate unto myself, I'm my own tribe, I'm my own village, I'm not a part of this, I, I'm not a part of you. I don't want you to need me and I don't want to need you. You know, what's fascinating about that uh, point, Zach, is you know, if we're going to start our discussion with human nature, you know, as we know, human beings are social animals, right? We understand each other and the world through our own social connections. And so this market logic that, that separates and tries to sort of disembed us um, from social relationships with each other is probably the most 
anti-human nature form of organization you can think of, right? This whole market of quid pro quo, I give you this, you give me that, and I'll see you later when I need something else again. That is just against every aspect of what makes us human beings. You know, we need this human connection to survive. I mean, you know, all the studies of people that have been in isolation, right? I mean, it literally prevents your brain from developing, lets you, prevents your physical, physical being from developing by being socially isolated. So in that sense, you could see how the market is actually against everything that we may even refer to as human nature. I, I thought it was interesting too. Another thing I'd like to uh, kind of add on to uh, what Zach was saying a minute ago with David Graeber, I was I was reading his book, um, you know, Debt: The First Five Thousand Years, uh, not too long ago. Also, and it was kind of interesting also how much he related honor um, with the that debt. That doesn't it sound familiar. Like, you know, that doesn't sound like a Hollywood really movie at all. Something that's just kind of been lost, essentially, in, in modern society. As as far as you know, honoring your fellow human being, your neighbors, your friends, family, the earth, and things like that. You know, a thousand years ago several thousand years ago especially i think there was a tale of I, I don't know somebody they were they were vying for achilles sword i think it was after he had died i forget who the characters exactly were uh but the person who wasn't chosen uh went and killed himself because he felt like it was just such a disgrace to not hold that honor to be a good enough person uh you know to be chosen to have achilles sword and now it's like the sword would be auctioned off <laughs> you know and there's no honor essentially involved in it anymore you know but but to auction something in that day would literally be an insult, you know, and they would they would not want it at any type of price. It was literally all about character, your honor, how how good of a person you were, how how worthy uh, you were to receive a gift or be bestowed with something like that, uh, you know. And it just kind of goes to show you the whole mindset uh, beneath it all as well. We've lost that um, honor for ourselves, for humanity, uh, for reverence for each other, for nature, respect. Um, you know, things like that. And that was kind of one of the main essences, I think, that I, I gained out of that book, too, is, you know, capitalism and just having a number of value system on everything like that, just it strips it all away, you know, and, and now everything is just about profit, how much how much can we, you know, profit can we extract out of the earth, or out of our environment or our fellow human beings. And, you know, if, if, if it makes dollars, then it makes sense. And, you know, honor is nowhere in the equation anymore, essentially. Uh, so speaking of um, the profit system that, you know, infinitely re reduces us in this, you know, quantified endless reduction where we chip away at each other forever. Uh, I'm curious to uh, ask you this, Jeff, because it's, it's something I kind of struggle to articulate because it's so it like pulsates with this malevolent electrical intensity of, of complexity and and insanity of of this whole uh, basically how the money system works today with the fractional reserve banking and and how all that came to be and how you know the federal reserve like i was i was talking to somebody the other day about all this stuff and they just kept asking like wait wait, wait what the fuck is what is the federal reserve what is that what is that and i just it just i just had to keep describing it like it was this lovecraftian like cold that lives underground and like you know pulls demons up out of the ground and puts them in the <laughs> coins and things like that it's just it's so dark and scary and weird and uh, i would love i would love if you could uh, help elucidate uh, just how illusory this sort of system is how made yeah. up it is yeah i spent a lot of time sort of going down the rabbit hole of the federal reserve and that was that was a fun good good time but you know the story of the Federal Reserve um, would go further back, I would say, than 1913, but I think 1913 is a good uh, starting point. Um, just because at that particular moment when the Federal Reserve Act was passed, 
Um, you know, interesting about that Federal Reserve Act when it first came into existence in 1913, it got passed on December 23rd, uh, which was, you know, most people that were in Congress when they were getting ready to vote on an act. Sorry about that there. <laughs> Sorry about that. I accidentally muted you when oh. I was trying to unmute myself. Oh, okay. I, I, I apologize. I like, he wants me to shut up right now. <laughs> so like, no, no, no. <laughs> we don't talk about that. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, uh, go ahead. My bad. We don't want to get Kennedy'd on this show. We don't want to talk about the, uh, the Federal Reserve too much. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A bullet is just going to whiz through all of our windows. That's right. <laughs> Simultaneously. <laughs> well, you know what I tell my students is that the Federal Reserve is neither federal nor does it have any reserves, right? And if you read on their website, they say they are independent within the government which is an interesting way to think about how they perceive themselves because the the monetary policy that federal reserve chairmen get to make uh they don't have to have approval from anybody in the government it's like unaccountable um, basically also i don't think they really answer to anybody either no they do don't they? no they don't the only thing that that happens is that the chairman of the federal federal reserve board is elected by the president the president picks them and that's that's the part that gets them and sort of like connected to the government. But the rest of that monetary policy is is completely independent from whatever is going on politically. Like they can make decisions on interest rates uh, and and how much they're loaning out. And they literally sit in, in a room in a in a round table. It sounds really silly. It sounds like very conspir conspiratorial, but um, they literally sit at a round table and decide uh, interest rates. They basically decide how expensive money is in the world, which controls quite a bit. It sounds like a fiction novel. It does. I mean, the way it's all set up sounds like a fiction novel, but it actually is, is quite true. But I don't know where you want me to start with it. I mean, the Federal Reserve is such a weird entity, but essentially they uh, have this magic wand where they can create money out of thin air. They create it through loans, which means they create it through debt. And the fascinating part about that is if you have a money system where every single dollar that's created has an equal amount of debt attached to it, then any discussion of paying debts off literally means removing money from society. And that isn't even accounting for any interest that may be added to pay back any debts that they say that you need to pay back from these loans. So if you add interest on top of that, that means there's always gonna be more debt than money. Meaning if you have an entire society based on a monetary system that has more debt than money, bankruptcies are inevitable, right? So it's a literally an elaborate game of musical chairs where we're all competing with each other over a scarce resource, money, which is a fictitious commodity, doesn't even exist in our physical reality, uh, for which there isn't enough to go around for everybody. It's, it's manufactured mathematically that way, but it keeps people showing up to work and being so busy with their lives, they can't think about how all this stuff works. So it is a, a massive form of social control. And it was like that, it was designed that way from its very beginning. In this completely disjointed, disconnected, competitive world, we are unified under the use of money that all societies all over the world, just about, unless there's some uncontacted, you know, isolated tribe that will shoot you with arrows if you try to come close and bring your, you know, your monetary germ. Uh, <laughs> we are Keep all unified. We're, we're unified <laughs> under this, this metric. We're unified in it. It's completely dominated the entire earth. You know, I would say without firing a shot, 
but you know we as we all know many shots have been fired to maintain this that it was not voluntary it was not they didn't they didn't give people a choice you can continue doing society the way you do or you can use our money it was like no no you have to use this you have to do this and it's this absolutely honestly a genius control mechanism where people will control themselves they will compete with each other for this this scarce made up resource this little token this thing that doesn't really mean anything and it doesn't have any use or value you can't eat it you can't you know make things with it it's just it's just basically a, a you know power token a control token and it we're completely dominated by it everywhere all over the world it and and yeah it's just it's it is super malevolent I said that to um, a student recently, uh, Zach, and they said, well, you can use money for something. You could wipe your ass with the, the, the dollar bills. And I was like, oh, well, that'd be a good use for it. Even that sounds painful. It's kind of like know, not even like, really, really, not even really suited towards that. Like, <laughs> it's like you could if you were like in a really, really uh, in a cramp, you know, like <laughs> I, I was just going to interject a, a buzzword or a key term. Uh, essentially, you know, I'm the, the one that likes to try to make sure that the people that are just now tuning in and trying to wrap our heads around these concepts that we're discussing in depth understand what we're saying and that perhaps they have some kind of anchor um i know that coercion is a word that's thrown around a lot now and so i just wanted to highlight the fact that that is exactly what jeff and marlo just expanded on um and and quite well very comprehensively nice so one thing that i'm curious as a sorry if i um, cut you guys off or anything there um as a sociology professor um i can I'm very curious, like to hear what your opinions are on the best actions that people could take to try to start moving in the direction of a moneyless society, or, um, you know, people who are familiar with zeitgeist movement, Venus project, we would call it more resource based economy, uh, you know, things like that. Um, a couple of the books I've I've read lately, they really emphasize kind of like grassroots movements, like essentially from the ground up a lot of the time. There's a couple movements recently. I think uh, like BLM, Black Lives Matter, uh, is is you know been formed kind of large parts from you know the ground up kind of a grassroots essential sort of thing. Um, and and a couple a couple of the books I've read lately have just really uh, emphasized the importance of having that kind of as a base. Um, but I, I'm curious, like, what does that look like in a movement like this? And also, do you think it's that important, or or is or is change, you know, the, the as massive as we're talking about, is that going to be more from a policy level, or both, or, you know, I mean, what what do you think? What are the most important aspects that people could do right now to start moving in that direction? Yeah, no, that's a super good question. Um, you know, the first thing I always say is that everybody's situation is different. Um, so what I can do um, to help that transition probably looks different than what you can do. Um, but the first thing I always say is, is that we're not gonna be able to fight a system in which we don't understand. And so I know that the first step, which is often uh, the most frustrating answer is that we, do, we need more education. And that's part of the reason why I am an educator um, is because that people aren't gonna want a different system if they can't even conceptualize what a different system would look like. So we do need to educate ourselves um, in how the system came about, what its uh, deficiencies are, and why it is something we need to try to move away from. And once you kind of get that under your belt, then I think there's a lot that can be done personally. So for example, me, what I have been trying to do is try to limit the amount of money I actually need to survive. 
And there's a number of different ways you can do that. And usually people bring up things like growing your own food, which I think is um, fantastic in many ways. Um, but there is something that I plan on personally trying to do myself. And I uh, want to challenge anybody who is in a similar position as me that can do this, um, which is a bit of a privileged position on my part. But I'm going to be trying to actually create and store my own power. And I think if I can really get a good system on how to get that done and remove myself from having to continue to pay uh, the power bill, um, that's going to be uh, huge in my ability to, to have start stepping out of this system and show other people how that we can start separating ourselves from needing this system. Because ultimately, this system spread by taking away all the means in which we were able to survive without it. And once it took all those systems away, then we relied on this system to survive. And we're going to have to start making the transition back away from it in a way in which doesn't revert us back to some like, I don't want everybody living in tents as an example, right? I'm not talking about going to some primitive um, hunter-gatherer society from where we're at today, but we're gonna have to try to develop systems for which we are all not reliant on the very system that is exploiting us and the environment for profit. So there's a number of different ways we can all accomplish that. Nice. But um, I think that sounds exactly like a lot of the things that we talk about doing long term here, too, is essentially creating systems that allow us to step outside of the poor, uh, the for profit uh, model for, you know, like you said, generating power, uh, food, you know, clothing, housing, vehicles, you know, other things like that. And I think I think the more people can come together and really start creating solid systems that actually do that and actually start manufacturing our I think manufacturing our own goods too with uh, co equal ownership, uh, more like cooperative based business models, you know, to where everybody essentially owns part of the business and owns, uh, you know, the means of production and whatnot. Uh, and, and it's more democratically distributed and decided what's going to be produced and things like that. Um, you know, those are a lot of the systems that we kind of eventually see being more of a transition to that. You know, maybe with multiple cooperatives working together, you can eventually have a system that provides workers or, you know, consumers within those cooperatives with, say, you know, universal basic goods and services or universal basic necessities, you know, instead of just like a universal basic income. Right now, we're actually giving people what they need to survive. And that, in my opinion, would probably eliminate, you know, a large portion of of you know what they would need in expenditures as far as you know monthly bills and things like that and if you can start to get pockets of communities you know together working with people working together like that to produce their own goods provide their own electricity you know then then you can start i think to have a basis for a transition um you know if you get enough people and communities and cooperatives and whatnot kind of working all working together that's that's kind of what i would envision what we end up talking a lot about the, it's kind of the subject we end up evolving into with a lot of these conversations it seems to me i kind of wanted to get your take on that too i think zach zach has something to add also probably i was just going to say that uh I, I was listening to this talk the other day and and he said that um corporations have existed for about 150 years as we know them and that just really made me think like wow that's really not a long time and he was saying that uh, corporations uh were this formulation this sort of social arrangement where people come together in a group collectivize really and it makes them a lot harder to rein in it makes them a lot harder to control it makes them harder it's a lot harder to hold a group of people accountable to uh, societal standards than it is for others and i think the American Constitution is all about business. It's all about, you know, 
empowering business owners. I mean, that was the intention of this nation. What was like, okay, King's not in charge. Business people are. The people who own property are. You know, propertarians, as a uh, Bookchin said, his his word for libertarians is funny. Um, That's funny. Th those are the people that have the power in this society. And as we see in in the short period of time that you know this nation has existed. The corporation has come to dominate and it's interesting we have the super individualistic culture but the corporation is collectivist you know jeff bezos maybe he's the head of amazon but he's he's just the you know the ty tyrannical uh, you know figurehead there there's a, a ton of people bringing all their resources together into these corporations and that's what makes them powerful even one person if he had a billion dollars can't do shit. you know you need people and i think the one of the most powerful things we can do, and it's a fundamental thing, it's a, it's a profound thing, is take the wealth and resources that we all have together individually and pool them collectively, you know? So it's like, it's like, it's like making a stew pot, you know? Somebody's got a carrot, somebody's got a potato, somebody's got some broth, somebody's got a stick of butter, you know? Everybody brings something together, and when that pot is full, everybody eats until they are more than full and there's leftovers for days. Every time, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a miraculous kind of alchemical synthesis that happens when people come together and share things. And I think that's really what we need to do. We need to, you know, you start with food production, the basics, everybody eats. Then you start with, then you move up to energy production. Robert Shields was talking about this. Our good friend, Robert Shields, who just ran for mayor of, of uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. You start with food, then you move up to energy, just like you're saying, Jeff. And then, like Matt's saying, then you move up to creating all the other things you need: clothes, you know, products, electronics, what, whatever. I mean, and then I think it's it's all about taking the money that we do have, sourcing it, you know, kind of crowdsourcing those small amounts, and then turning them into permanent infrastructure, turning them into things that basically uh, bring us to that kind of zero marginal cost of 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 life, where life doesn't cost anything. You know, you have solar panels. They essentially last for about 10 years. You know, you have 10 years of power and that power that you generate through that, it, it can circulate and it can grow. And you in that, I, it, that's, that's what I see. And I, I think the larger macrocosmic vision is like we should all collectively be investing in infrastructure that makes life free or as close to free as we can get until that cost gets lower and lower and lower where we don't need any more inputs, where we're just creating this, you know, societal infrastructure that just basically makes things free and automated you know as i was uh, listening to you talk zach i was actually thinking oh go ahead go ahead amanda oh no it's, it's not nearly as important i was just going to sum up what zachary said as uh, the bridge analogy that i use sometimes obviously what we need is building those steps one at a time and each thing that he mentioned is basically a phase of that transition and to conceptualize it or try to visualize it you've got the world that we live in today the globe and then you have the bridge that's being built uh plank by plank extending out to the new world that will support us and be sustainable and it's not impossible that's exactly how the world we know today was built that's how the infrastructure that we experience today was built was one step and one phase at a time well but but like jeff said unintentionally it was unintentionally done yes. it wasn't designed it wasn't planned it was just hobbled together mishmash you know mm -hmm. this here this here this here it wasn't for it wasn't for per for a purpose you know we we have we live in a for-profit dystopia and like you've th these are your words amanda that we live yeah. in a for-profit dystopia when we could be living in a for a for purpose utopia, just a world that is intentional, 
a world that, you know, many worlds could exist within this framework all over the world, localized, custom to every location, to every locality. The people that live there can actually design it. It doesn't have to be this sort of centralized, unified thing. As long as it's unified along the actual, you know, human value system and the ecological value system that it's sustainable, that it, it, it contributes to human wellness, human growth, and to the flourishing of our ecosystem. Just one more thing really quickly. You were going to say something there. Oh, no, go ahead. (laughs) We're never going to let you know. Go. We're all choking at the bit. I was just going to say how every time he says uh, something about how unintentionally designed our society is today, it reminds me of the oil rigs that are still present today, 200 years later, 150 years later, in the neighborhoods of California, because sometime long ago, some some white guy that wanted some oil thought that'd be a good idea. And so they they just left them there, and they're still in use, and they're camouflaged by paintings and school buildings. (laughs) Well, you know, something I was um, just thinking about when Zach was talking is that um, when we start talking about transition steps, I think there's um, there's going to be a major hurdle that I think a lot of people have talked about, um, but it's just something I just want to bring up just because I've been talking to my classes a lot about this. Um, one of the major hurdles that we're going to have to really take seriously is the amount of psychological warfare that's going on. Um, and what I mean by that specifically in this case is we have an entire uh, industry that we call advertising that was essentially invented um, the way that we think about it today after World War I. And this propaganda machine of, of glorifying commodities to us in these ways that appeal to our emotions and don't appeal to any sort of utilitarian aspect of whatever the commodity is, is something that has gotten so much steam and so much momentum at this point that um, to think about unwinding the sort of psychological damage that this has been doing to human beings, especially people in the United States over time, um, is something that we really are going to have to address and wrap our mind around. Um, There's plenty of studies that talk about the ways in which people who had never been exposed to advertising before uh, were fairly happy individuals. And then after they were exposed to it for a while, they'd done studies um, showing that they have increasing amounts of depression and and, uh, negative feelings about themselves. And and, and all of this sort of um, ways in which the advertising uh, industry that was developed after World War I really uh, is psychologically damaging to us that I don't know how we're gonna unwind it, but we're gonna have to figure out some way of doing it if we're gonna um, progress as a, as a human species on this planet. Well, I, I actually think um, that it seems so dooming and damning when you read that stuff, you know, and that's like the real conspiracy in our world is that when we had the productive capacity to create abundance, people who were you know, owning own factories and then were invested in them, the capitalist class said there are fucking memos and recordings and writings of people saying, we need people to buy more stuff than they need. We need to make them dissatisfied. They literally said this, like there are yeah. records. We got receipts. Paul Mazur, Paul Mazur a uh, Lehman Brothers executive wrote a book um, called like American Prosperity. Like I think that's the name of the book. And where he says that specifically, that we need to foster dissatisfaction in the world because they could produce and distribute huge amount of uh, resources and commodities all around the world, but consumption rates were so low that they couldn't find the demand for how much they could produce. So they literally invented this advertising machine, which the head of that is Edward, Edward Bernays. If anybody um, isn't familiar with Edward Bernays, I would definitely look him up. Um, but he is somebody that literally invented this whole system of manipulating people's uh, subjective um, emotional understandings about who they are um, to sell them commodities. So it, it seems scary and 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 dooming to think about that. But but it, when you really th- see how quickly 
people's minds were changed on a mass cultural level from being relatively happy, consistent, not over-consuming. And that's one of the, the, thing, the reasons I really wanted to make this show about human nature, because so many times we talk about this stuff, people will say, oh, well, humans are greedy or, oh, humans are, you know, we'll, we'll you know, uh, take more than we need. You know, the tragedy of the commons, people will take more than they need because people are greedy. People are not greedy. And we can see before advertising, you know, somebody, we did not have a consumer culture. People did not place their importance in things nearly to the degree that we do today. And that was intentional. That was created in a very short amount of time. And I think with, if we can gain control of the, you know, all forms of the means of production, the means of production of media, the means of production of, of, you know, music and movies and culture, you know, we, we need to seize these, this technology and utilize it and utilize it better than the people who are controlling it on this mass level and, you know, jamming this worldview down people's throats that we can, though, we can change people's minds in a very short amount of time. You know, people had look, look at you look at the world and you see people glued to their cell phones and, you know, you see the, the rampant consumerism and people going shopping for fun and, you know, destroying themselves. And, you know, you got videos on YouTube of like, like, like people in, in uh, the woods, like just blowing things up for fun and, you know, taking pride in their trucks exhaust. And, and you just think like, man, we, how are we ever going to get it together? But then you, but then you also see like, you see like people are such followers, you know, how are we going to get it together? But it's, it's like people are followers. That's it. That's kind of like the silver lining here is that people will follow that our, our, the nature of our nature is not to be constrained by our nature. You know, even though we do all these things that are destructive to us, you know, we are hackable. We're adaptive infinitely adaptive we can adapt to any circumstance and any person that you see in the world today that you think might be stupid or backwards or caught in the old ways they don't like take it for granted if there's enough social pressure they will change because we are hardwired to unless unless you have a lot of money and you you you, you know neurologically like stop uh, registering the emotions of other people and you you're you're less empathetic yeah jeff can you kind of talk speak to that because like, oh, it's yeah. not just like rich people bad. That's like this is neurology. This is a science of like how money affects our brains, how power and money affect us. Yeah, there's some really interesting work um, in social psychology done by a guy named Paul Piff and another guy named uh, Decker. I believe his last name is Decker. Uh, anyways, they've done some really interesting studies where they found that it isn't so much that horrible people end up being rich it's that once you get a certain amount of wealth it ends up making you mean in the sense that it ends up actually reducing the amount of empathy you have for other people um, they have these elaborate games of monopoly which i'm sure uh, maybe some people have already heard of but they have these rigged game of monopoly uh, where they'll have two people that are playing and by the flip of a coin um, one person gets to roll with two dice and one person gets to roll with one dice one person gets to collect 200 dollars when they pass go one person does not and as they continue to play the game, the obvious thing starts to happen, right? One person starts to get all of the property and all of the money. Well, once they start doing that, they have all these interesting behaviors. Like they start actually smashing the, the chips of the, the, the board pieces on the board harder. They start eating more food. That's uh, like a, the bowl of pretzels they have on the side. They start eating more pretzels as they start getting more money. They start being more rude to the other player. And then by the very end of it, they end up attributing their success to their own, their own ability to play the game not the fact that the game was rigged and they just by chance got an extra set of privileges that the other person got. 
Um, so there's tons of studies that are like that, that showed basically money itself and the more money we have ends up reducing our actual empathy for other human beings. And that's why I say things like the market are probably the one thing that human beings uh, have created and are perpetuating that is truly against who we really are and how we can actually flourish in this world, which is fascinating because the exact opposite argument is made by economists, that the only way to flourish uh, is to give people jobs and to give them money and to get them, as they say, out of poverty. Um, when we know for a fact that the only reason why you were suffering in poverty is because you're forced to live in a system based on this economic thought process to begin with, right? So I don't know how much more you want me to expand on that, but there's so many different studies by uh, social psychologists that just go over this over and over and over again. Even people like Alfie Cohen. Alfie Cohen's a great person to look up. He wrote a book called Punished by Rewards, and he would talk about how um, the mere fact of giving somebody an extrinsic reward actually prevents people from thinking deeper about problems and actually ends up uh, reducing their ability to have creative thinking processes because the more in which you are focused on this extrinsic reward of money, the less you're focused on the project at hand. And there's just, I mean, it's such a plethora amount of uh, research done on that. Uh, a guy named Daniel Pink wrote a book called Drive, who has, makes the same argument, which ironically, he's a, uh, a capitalist himself, and he comes to this conclusion that is one of the most anti-capitalist conclusions you can come to, which is that extrinsic rewards do not promote innovation. Um, but that's what's being promoted throughout society, right? That we're going to have to have markets. And in the beginning of that book, uh, there's a great quote, and it's from the uh, people who did one of the first uh, studies on you know, ex extrinsic motivations. And it says, it's basically like, they're talking about their findings after they did this test on like, okay, we give people money to do these tasks and yeah, they're going to do it better. Right. It, they said like, um, I love this quote so much. It's like, um, it's like we did a, an experiment where we rolled a ball bearing down an, a, down a slope and to our great surprise, it flew up into the air, suggesting that the, the fundamental gravity of the way that we think that the world is motivated, it just, it doesn't work. So yeah, I mean, he, I just read that book and he breaks it down through countless studies that just say like, there are, there is only like one instance where, you know, uh, giving people monetary reward makes them better at what they're doing. And that's a, just a blindly repetitive task. And I can actually speak personally to that. I used to trim weed. <laughs> I used to go out to the, the uh, cannabis growing region of Northern California and trim weed every season i would help harvest it and do all that stuff but then you have to trim it up and you just you're just sitting there mindlessly cutting it with scissors for hours but you get paid based on how much you produce so i was like okay great and because th that's people all over the world would come out there and do that because you can work under the table you can make like a hundred dollars a day or you know there's no cap really the cap is how much you work so i would work like 14 hours a day and everybody most of the people there would just you just go you just work really hard and i became really fixated on the money only time in my life i've ever been motivated by money even though you know i'm i make movies i'm i'm good at it i could be making you know 10 grand uh, a commercial 30 grand a commercial for three days of work i have no motivation to do that because i don't care about the money but when it was like the more you work the more money you get that was very motivating but those kinds of jobs are being automated now and technological unemployment is inevitable they will be automated as soon as they can you know make it more cost effective even though and they should be you know I, again and again we keep coming back to the central tier point the central transition step is like i think getting people and especially in like the labor movements to understand we don't have to work like this we can automate away all this work we don't need to work for money to live and the money itself is not the best motivator and amanda has had her finger up for like 10 minutes i'm sorry <laughs> it's really okay and, and i know that it's definitely time here from matt again um 
but I just had to point out something that you got very close to um, explaining and highlighting there, Jeff. I personally could do a whole show on on demystifying corruption. You you pointed out how you know the more money someone gets, it, inevitably it's going to change who they are. And what happens is people moralize that argument, and they're all like, "Oh, but if you're a good person, you'll always be a good person." And so people are mystified by this conception of. Um, of, of becoming corrupt just because you have more money than another person, but that's just the inherent mechanisms. That's how it works. If you live in a society where you don't have to reciprocate and, and you, you can be independent with enough money, then, then obviously you're not going to reach out and be the social being you were born if you can live on your own without others' help. And then also to go back just a little further, you were talking about engineered demand. And what popped in my mind was uh, another phrase is FOMO, fear of missing out. That's essentially what that guy created. And that has created like nearly incomprehensible myriad of of social issues, you know, right that right down to like um, intimate relationship issues. People, you know, might miss out on a better partner. To what kind of house, what kind of car, what kind of food, what kind of clothes you have, uh, what kind of school you go to, just because we've been exposed to all these options that are instantaneously at our fingertips that may or may not even be necessary. But anyway, I'm sorry, Matt. What did you have to say? No, I don't have. I, I didn't have anything to say. I, think <laughs> I was just laughing. It's okay. <laughs> Although I could, I, actually, I did have, I did have a question and two. What um, I was just curious, also, if you had read the book um, or heard of the book "Survival of the Friendliest." I thought that was um, interesting book. I haven't read it all the way through, but I know, like, uh, who was it? Uh, Herbert Spencer, I think, kind of, you know, bastardized the survival of the fittest, uh, you know, whole thing and that kind of, uh, I think some of his research was kind of the basis for all that. But there was a book that came out not too long ago, I think, called Survival of the Friendliest, where they kind of go back and, um, you know, debunk some of that, too. So just curious if you had heard of that and what your thoughts were also. I haven't heard of that book. Um, that sounds like a very interesting read, but yes, that is absolutely true that Herbert Spencer created the term survival of the fittest, right? Because Darwin was talking about um, species best able to adapt to their environment live to breed another day, right? Like that was that was what his suggestion was. It had to get nothing to do with glorifying competition, right? He's like species compete and also cooperate um, to survive, uh, depending on what the circumstances are. Um, but the one thing I was thinking about when Zach was talking was that you know, these incentives that we talk about, extrinsic rewards, one of the things that they are really, really, really good at is motivating people to do things they don't want to do for means they don't agree with. And in that sense, money is one of the greatest forms of coercion and manipulation that has ever been created. And I think that is also missed because people don't often think about that. They think about money as something that gives them freedom. But in, essentially, money is a way to control and restrict the freedom of others to gain access to the things they need to survive, because if they don't give that piece of money, they don't get access to it. So it is not a form of freedom. It is the greatest form of delusion and social coercion that has ever been created or perpetuated by humanity. Right. And I think that that's a great point, too. And I, I, it was something that we were talking about earlier, too, um, in order in order for them to uh, really be, you know, part of the economy and the workforce, they have to be free, which means they they have to be free, um, you know, from labor from another person. They also have to be free from the means to subsist, meaning like free from ownership of land or any kind of means of production. And then they can be coerced into working for wages, essentially. So I think that's a great point.
Yeah, it's it's. I've been reading a bit about the uh, the history of wage wage labor and how maligned it's been through history. That it's like wage labor is slavery. I mean, and all through history, it's been treated that way. You know, and and it's like, you know, even in like the 1800s around like Lincoln's time, where that that Marxist rhetoric was really permeating American politics, where they're talking about how you know labor creates value and you know the dignity of the worker and all this stuff, and it, they're they're speaking out against um, wage labor. And um, there, there's these, there's, it's this document that's like, it's a very, it's like one of those conspiratorial little documents you find where you're like, are people actually, <laughs> you know, conspiring to control our society? I'm trying to find it. What it is, the Hazard Circular. Slavery is likely to be abolished by the war power and chattel slavery destroyed. This I and my European friends are in favor of, for slavery is but the owning of labor and carries with it the care of the laborer. While the European plan, led on by England, is capital control of labor by controlling wages. This can be done by controlling the money. That was in, um, I first saw that in Zeitgeist Addendum, and I had forgotten the name of that title to that document. But that was where I first saw it was in Zeitgeist, Zeitgeist Addendum in that movie. Yeah, it's just it's so interesting the, uh, the 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 back and forth we go between where it's like is this intentional? Are there people pulling the strings? Is there like an an articulated conspiracy of you know people like the Rockefellers and things like that making things happen? You know, because you find I find quotes horrible quotes from John D. Rockefeller every you know like every, every time I, his name comes up, it's like he said something the other day. It was like uh, <laughs> it was like. <laughs> The best time to invest is when the streets run red with blood. Like, <laughs> like the things this motherfucker said. He said, "We don't want a nation of of thinkers. We want a nation of workers." You know, and like, there's people who, at all turns who have sought to control society. You know, and and it, it's it's interesting to me. I just feel like those people are clearly the most controlled by money. They're the most controlled by it. That they would they would actually sacrifice true self interest of creating flourishing habitats. Like the whole Malthusian mandate, the whole Malthusian thing of like, we want to make things worse so more poor people die so that there'll be less, you know, there'll be more resources yeah. for everybody that people will literally destroy their habitat on purpose or just knowingly yeah. do it to continue, you know, making profit in the interim. You know, there's a philosophical history behind that too, Zach. Um, you know, if you read, because I was forced to read a lot of economic history um, in my grad school. Forced. <laughs> Some of it was pretty horrible. Like, honestly, I, I didn't want to read Malthus again. I didn't want to read Adam Smith again, but I had to. But anyways, so I, when you're reading this kind of stuff, what you find out is that there was a point in history uh, when classical economists, they actually perceived the market as being subordinate to the needs of society. And then there was this shift that happened, this shift that happened right at the end of the 18th century, um, where people like Thomas Malthus and David Ricardo and Adam Smith, they flipped that on its head. And they now saw the world uh, as society's needs being uh, submissive to the needs of the market, which was a complete reversal of the way people used to think about it. And in that sense, um, it created what John McMurtry would call the market as God, right? And so once they made that philosophical switch in their minds, then you have people like Thomas Malthus who are advocating bringing back the plague to reduce the amount of people in society. Um, so that history is fascinating as far as how it changed mentally between people's minds, because the market really was something that was peripheral to most people's lives. It was something they really only dealt with in small areas of their life. It wasn't encompassing everything about their life like it is today. And it was that psychological switch with classical economists, uh, for which we now call neoclassical economists, um, in, the, in, the, in the rhetoric and the, the literature when you read it. 
that that switch is really that moment where um, capitalism really took off and really developed into what it is today, um, where we think that everything should have a price on it. Everything should be subjective to the uh, competitive whims of the market. And that just really wasn't even embedded even in economists' minds uh, prior to that moment. So it is actually a fascinating history, and that history started not that long ago, relatively, right? Well, I think it, it really just overall it, it speaks to the fluidity and the adaptivity of us that we are we change very quickly, and little ripples through human consciousness can just go so far. So I, I think I kind of want to shift gears to talking about kind of doing that in more intentionally and. Um, your experience with Jacques Fresco and you know the Zeitgeist movement, the Venus Project, because I, I mean I know I know you. We talk all the time. Um, I know you have a great story, you know, a very personal, beautiful story of the ways that the, these conceptualities changed your life, changed the way you think, changed your amount of hope in humanity that we can change things. Yeah. Well, you know the the quote I always say about Jacques that I I usually tell people is he said something to me in person that I. Um, I'm sure you could find a recording of this, right? But he said it to me in person and it just stuck with me forever. He just said that every single person is perfectly well adjusted from where they are coming from. And in that sense, you know, he was talking about trying to communicate with different people from different backgrounds. You know, he's somebody that um, was able to turn around a Ku Klux Klan group in Florida, as an example, and a white citizens council group. Um, and so if he was able to do that, you know, the amount of people that we say are impossible to change, I think is, I think he has proven that, that to be wrong. It's just our tactics that we use um, are what needs to be changed on how we communicate with people who are thinking like this. But my personal story with Jacques is just, I, I found myself at 30 years old. I had had two children. They were three and five years old at the time. And I, at that moment in my life, had just gotten um, broken up with the mother of my children. Um, she essentially disappeared. We didn't see her for a few years. Um, so it was just me and my two kids. And I had to start my life over, essentially, um, the long and short of that story. And I was just struggling to find jobs that fulfilled fulfilled me. You know, I was stuck in many, many dead-end jobs, blue-collar entry jobs, from truck driving to construction jobs. And I finally decided that one day I was gonna I was going to pursue the job that made me the happiest. And so I've always been into martial arts and working out and lifting weights and doing this type of stuff. So I thought I could be a personal trainer and I thought I could live my own American dream and pursue that. So I read and memorized a 500 page book for the National Academy of Sports Medicine. And I took the test and it was the first test in my life that I can remember uh, studying for and passing because uh, in school, I intentionally didn't do any work in school. Um, but so I passed this test and I get to be a personal trainer. And what I found out is that it actually just was a sales job. It was just me trying to sell me to somebody else to get them to pay me to hang out with me. And I just found it so disgusting. I was like, I just want to help people. I wasn't here to try to suck $300 out of you every month and try to figure out what they actually had me taking classes at this gym to try to box people into saying yes. And I remember just being so disgusted by it. And, but I didn't know why. I didn't know why I was living in this world for which nothing made sense to me. I felt alienated wherever I went. And even the one thing that I thought was going to make me happy in this world um, was completely destroyed once I tried to make money off of it. Um, and so that's when I fell into watching uh, Zeitgeist moving forward. And that documentary, I watched it in 2013 when it came out. And when that documentary came out, I was just like, 
I just remember walking around in a daze for weeks, like just thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. And so I just started researching all these people that were in the documentary. Well, obviously one of the people was Jacques Fresco. And I, when I started learning more about him and what he was saying, it just, it, it filled all of these holes in my mind that I had had since I was a little boy and that I couldn't figure out why I didn't feel connected with the rest of the world, why I didn't feel connected with everybody, why every time I tried to make my job my passion, it just fell apart. And so I decided at the time that I had to meet him because I knew he was in his late 90s and he didn't have much time. And I don't, I don't have a good explanation for what compelled me to do it, but I just felt every essence of my being that I had to meet him in person. So I took every single penny I had left to my name and I bought a round trip ticket to Florida and I went down there and I met him during one of his Saturday meetings um, and listened to him talk uh, for hours and listened to Roxanne talk. And we went around uh, the whole Venus project and he showed me all the things he's invented and done. And I was just on a high. I was just like, this is it. Like this is something, a direction that people don't know about, people aren't listening to. And I need to tell people about it. Well, I started telling people about it when I got back home and I just got Marxist, communist, socialist, and just all of these like things thrown at me. And at the time I'd only read a little bit of Marx, right? So I hadn't, I didn't really know what it meant to call me a Marxist. I was just like, for some reason, people think that's what I am now. So anyways, I ended up just um, learning more about um, political economy in general, the uh, economics. And I remember taking um, a lot of free courses on economics after that, just to try to understand why people were attacking me the way they were attacking me. Um, but ultimately, Jacques' inspiration still to this day is the thing that makes me believe that people can be different and that we can create a world that is different than the one we have today. And uh, one in which uh, this exploitation of money and coercion of money doesn't have to exist. Um, and before that, it just wasn't in my mind. Like I, I would say that um, it just like many other people, you just literally can't see outside the box of the monetary market economy. And the moment it broke out of my mind, then my mind was free. And all of a sudden I was so thirsty for knowledge after meeting Jacques that I was just reading textbooks for fun. Like I was just, just immersed in trying to learn and, 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 and understand. And, and that's when I was like, I need to go to school because that's what I would be doing in school anyway. So um, that's my impetus to go to college is actually meeting Jacques, which I, um, I think a lot of people find pretty interesting. But for me, he cracked open something in my mind that I think was hindering me for a long time. And once that, that box was cracked open, the floodgates have been open ever since. And I've just been so thirsty for knowledge ever since. And so his inspiration um, is beyond, beyond words in, in, in how I can describe to you how, it, how he has inspired me to be a better person and to try to change the world to something better. Okay, I have, a, I have a, probably a real hardball question here, but I think you're actually, uh, well, the, the best, maybe the best person I know to really answer it. It's like, how would you explain the kind of world that you want to live in and that we could live in and sort of the path to that, you know, to say one of these people you worked with on job sites or to, you know, somebody that is just, you know, somebody with, whose mind is closed, somebody who is, you know, just the average person walking around this world, you know, who isn't particularly educated, doesn't know, doesn't know the theory behind it. You know, how would you, how would you, how would you explain like what, it, what is the world we want to live in? What could we do? Yeah, well, you know, that is, um, 
definitely a hardball question in the sense that it is very difficult to answer depending on who you're talking to, right? Um, and generally, well, real, real, I, real quick thing about about Jacques yeah. and uh, this was actually quick, not a me quick that turns into a ten minute tangent. <laughs> but like the way to talk to people is to speak their language, no matter what, yeah. no matter who they are and where they're coming from. You know, just to be able to speak someone's language is super therapeutic, and um, I just think that's that's a really important thing is to realize everybody's coming from a certain place, and we have to meet them where they are. We can't throw this these concepts and terms and things at them and just expect them to get, get them and then get angry when they don't. But yeah, go, go ahead. Well, what, 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 is, say, what, I, is, what is the world that we could be said, living in? I was gonna say, you basically said probably what I was going to say. So, um, that, that's how I approach, um, the people I talk to is I try to come at them from where they're coming from. When we're talking about a different system and especially a resource-based economy, I think Jacques' metaphor um, of understanding how the human body works is the best way to approach it because that is literally how he designed a resource-based economy was the, the ways in which the human body functions. And so this is where we start getting into things like systems theory, right, Matt? Um, because what Jacques was talking about is that if we want a city that works, it's going to have to be a viable system. And uh, any viable system um, is going to have to have some sort of equilibrium and the system that we have today is based on infinite growth and we have a finite planet and these resources regenerate at a certain uh, rate and the economic system we have today doesn't respect that matter of fact it goes out of its way to exploit it at ever increasing faster speeds and uh and more devastating consequences but essentially jacques would use the metaphor that you know if if you know your liver said i'm the most important organ and your brain said no i am and i'm going to go free enterprise system you'd rot away in a month if your body operated um, within the, this capitalist logic and so we're going to have to find a way to create an economic system that has dynamic equilibrium meaning we're going to have to find some sort of balance with uh the other life on this planet for which we all depend on and any economic system that doesn't try to find balance, a steady state balance uh, with the resources of this planet is doomed to fail. You know, you might be interested just on a side tangent. Um, I am teaching um, a class called the Sociology of Communication right now. Yeah. I'm teaching the class on the history of mass media communications over the Ooh, last hundred years. I just picked up a book on the anthropology of media that I'm excited oh. to read. And I bet you'd have some good input on that. Yeah. Your testimony was so cathartic. Like I can so relate as an artist, after I tried pushing myself and selling myself, I was like, forget it. I just wanted to paint, not, not sell myself to people, you know, in, in order to sell my paintings. But anyways, and also you're making some really great profound points uh, and then you're making them e easily digestible. This is maybe by far my first or my favorite conversation we've had. Oh, well, I'll take that as a huge compliment. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you, made, you made me wish I really met Jacques Fresco too. It sounds like, it sounds like that was a really cool experience. Uh, it, it's like I said, it's, it was so, it was so beyond describing. Like I actually wrote um, an article about my experience for the Venus Project, yeah. and they had posted it on their online magazine. Huh. And their online magazine was up for years. And this guy Tio Trom was actually the one running it. Right, right. Eventually, they had a falling out, and they took that magazine down. And my yeah. my article went with Aww. it. So oh, um, that, that was an unfortunate. Um, but it was one of those moments where I really hadn't ever written anything. I know that sounds very strange, but I was able to actually go through entire high school, all the way to high school, but okay. never really writing a paper. <laughs> um, 
No, I really That's was funny. like super anti-school. I had all kinds of books I was reading and dealing with, uh, but I just sure. had nothing to do with school. Um, <laughs> I hate, I hate and now you're a professor. Lovely. No, and I, I talk to the students about that because I'm like, some of the ways I'm organizing this class is the way I, I, I is the opposite of what I hated That's about school. Awesome. Because right. I don't just sit in front of the class and just start lecturing. Like I have things that I that I have us learning about, and then we sit in groups and discuss it. And I look eye to eye with my students, right? Like I'm not looking up at them and down at them and looking at everybody. And I want to get in their face. I want to get close to them. Um, I want to see how they're taking this information. I want to read their body language. And I want to make sure that this is a, um, something we are all embarking on, not something I am making you embark on. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's comforting to know that someone like you is out there teaching the youth. You should see my students' faces. As my, we're, only, we're only halfway through the semester, and my students are just, like, blown away with what I've shown them so far. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. But I'm, yeah. but I'm getting ready to show them uh, about Operation Gladio. Have any of you heard of Operation Gladio? No, I haven't heard of that. What's that? Oh, man. It, it's this operation that the uh, CIA was involved in that essentially they were creating uh, provocateurs to go hmm. in and, and, and look like they were communists and to act like they were communists and then to go do something horrible to make communists look bad. Really? All of <laughs> so um, to further propagandize the, the Red Scare. Yeah, yeah. But it was a uh, what they would call black ops. That's right, that. Right, yeah. So all of these things for which they po have plausible deniability for, but which they are uh, stoking all kinds of dissent. And so I'm showing that the students that this is something that's been happening over years, and let me show you some contemporary that's examples. That's awesome. Hmm. So we have contemporary examples that are going on today where they actually they actually had this uh, guy from a, a right-wing group called the Boogaloos. He admitted in court that he dressed up as a Black Lives Matter supporter and started smashing windows, and he actually brought a gun and was shooting it at a police station, uh, saying things like Black Lives Matter and, and uh, support for George Floyd, and he was doing all of these things as if he was this uh, uh, left-winger, right. when in fact right. he was a part of uh, right-wing groups uh, doing this on purpose to frame um, quote unquote Antifa, which is a whole other right. subject. But anyways, that's a tangential. Sorry. I just, no, I just the links they go to, I, it's amazing. Some of the links they go to these days to, uh, I, I think demonize the left essentially. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think, I think a lot of people are afraid, you know, so they have to go out of their way now to make it look bad. I think that's kind of what's happening. There's so much information out there now that the, the right is very afraid of everybody really finding out the truth, the big lie, the, the conspiracy that we've basically been had by capitalism for the last, you know, several hundred years, and that the cat's out of the bag now. And they're scrambling to try to put the cat back in the bag with all this lies and disinformation and everything else. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are falling for it, hook, line, and sinker, especially in the United States, unfortunately. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's only a matter of time, I think, and hopefully until, until some of that, uh, you know, information comes to light. But we'll see. I mean, who knows? There's a lot of talk of, like, Trump getting reelected now in 2024 and fascism and all this other stuff. And I'm just like, That's oh, terrorizing. my God, like, this is just... You can't be like, like I, I well, swear if Trump gets elected again, yeah. I, I, I probably will start looking at other options of places, <laughs> countries to live. Cause I don't know if I can but, deal with, yeah. with another four years of that seriously. And in any student of history will tell you too, that if you look at when um, economic systems, especially the kind that we have start to disintegrate, that's when the right wing uh, despots come into power. 
right? right when people right. get really, really scared and really, really worried, they start looking for somebody to come in and fix the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is really the danger of, of where we're at now, because as you said, right, the cat's out of the bag. Like the economic system we have today just simply does not work. And, and what scares me is that throughout history, we have generally fallen back on giving large amounts of power to small groups of people, even one particular person, right. um, when we are deeply scared and, and, and worried and in and deep economic uh, disparity. So it is a scary moment we're in. There's yeah. the impulse, you know, to uh, ask for daddy. <laughs> and I think that's, uh, I just watched a really great uh, video by St. Andrew one of my favorite YouTubers about the, the mind of authoritarianism. And it was absolutely fascinating video breakdown uh, based on some really interesting studies on what it is that makes people turn authoritarian. And it's basically like having this fearful worldview and, you know, desiring like a strong leader to come in and fix it. And it's, 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 it was very chilling listening to this, these descriptions of people and being able to see that in people, you know, being able to see, this behavior in so many people and, and even people, you know, within the left that they want an authoritarian regime. And, you know, that <laughs> there's, there's people I know that would call themselves, you know, leftists or whatever they're actually calling for and spending their free time arguing for authoritarianism. Oh, we need authoritarianism. We just need left authoritarianism. And I just think that's so sad and pathetic to me that people are so wounded and we're so inculcated in this victimized sensibility where, we're so beaten down by this system and it's it's you know abusive cycle that we it it is us in so many ways so many people can't imagine anything beyond it and they they see the actions of the people that are in power and they can't they can't see why they can't see that there's something deeper than a personal human failure they can't see that they're actually just perfectly adapted to the environment that they were raised in you know they can't see that that they were conditioned to be this way they just see evil they just see evil and they see like this dark figure they see this distorted you know black hole that warps everything around it that's what capitalism is it's this all devouring thing that bends space time around it so that like uh, Caitlin Johnstone I was I can't I can't think of the exact wording but she said what is capitalism and it's it's a system where the victims of it are treated <laughs> as the oppressor and i think that's so powerful that so many people are you know capitalism is obviously fucking the world up unbelievably terribly <laughs> in so many ways but there's so many people out there because we have this coercive mass media manipulation that they think that oh the problem is the left the problem is leftists, it's Antifa, it's critical race theory. It's all these things that are actually arising as like an antibody to it. That um, my, my dad sent me this text the other day. It's, 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 it's really great, like the relationship I have with the old man, because when I first started talking about all this stuff, he was very skeptical of it. He was like, oh, okay, whatever. And now he just sends me these, qu these quotes all the time about like, he says, the human mind treats a new idea the way the body treats a strange protein. It rejects it. And it's like, you know, the metaphor of the... Uh, the vaccination and the, the furor over vaccination is is perfect because so many people are reacting to you know a treatment to a sickness as if it's the sickness i talked to this this girl the other day she was at a, a rainbow gathering Beautiful. in france and there was one person who was vaccinated there and everybody treated them like they were sick they were like you got the vaccine are you okay it's like and people would be like they wouldn't touch them they wouldn't come near them that that we are so warped and inverted by this 
just nonsense logic of this system that we live within this thing that's beating this beating the hell out of us every day and we have to just say oh no no they're not doing that i did that or you know uh the, the people that are trying to intervene in the fight they're the they're the aggressor you know and if you hadn't intervened then then they wouldn't have gotten mad and hit me more you know or, or whatever the logic is there's not logic it's not logic it's deep fear and just a crushing of, of what it is to be human the human the human being has just been crushed in so many people that they're not really connected to that anymore they're not connected to any any of the positive aspects of humanity so they blame themselves they blame the human being they say oh human nature did this to us not a made-up system that we you know haphazardly devised 200 years ago it reminds me of that quote by uh, Bucky Fuller in Critical Path. He said, humanity is going to have to learn how to make money or make sense because the two are mutually exclusive. <laughs> and I, I, I think about that quote all the time, right? That's great. Yeah. No, I quote, I've quoted that in papers multiple times, too, uh, to professors. They always found that, that quote really interesting. Um, he's That's somebody awesome. that I could talk about for hours and hours and hours, too. Bucky's one of the most fascinating figures you could ever learn about, in my mind, but... And as they say, someone that um, Jacques stood, stood on the shoulders of, you know, in order oh, yeah. to further those objectives. Yeah. So in, in brief, what do you, what do you, cause I love Bucky Fuller. I think he's one of those people that you read him and he just, he slices through all ideology because yeah. he has this, this, you know, engineer's mind that he sees things, you know, it's a form of radical common sense. And I think that's what, that's what Jacques had that is so yeah. rare and beautiful that's a radical common sense it's not an ideology it's not a belief system it's not a narrative that you implant over reality it's reality they're being rational bucky and jock and it makes them rational according to the system standards that common sense though right that you're talking about that bucky developed so he he developed that kind of common sense from uh being blind as a child i'm not sure if many people understand that but he couldn't he couldn't see as a kid and so i mean he could see colors and like sort of shapes but he couldn't see more than like an inch from his face right that's why later on in life you see him with these huge thick glasses but when he was growing up um the story he always told is that he was given uh, toothpicks and dried peas because i guess they give kids that and they tell the kids to build a house with it well all these other kids were building square boxes with it because every house they'd ever seen was a square box well bucky not really ever seeing shapes before he just started building triangles and then when he felt the square boxes he didn't understand why they would build it like that because it was unstable he's like you could use less um, toothpicks and less peas and make a stronger stable structure than you could with making this this square box and so that stuck with him for the rest of his life he thought tactically he thought materially about things even the way he uh, creatively thought about things was in this material fashion um, and that's how he sort of like conceived of and helped develop the geodesic dome which today is still the single strongest structure known to man using the least amount of material um, but he did that because his creative thinking process was built around overdeveloping his tactile sense. So he was able to convey this like new method of thinking about material, um, well, actually enclosing, uh, you know, buildings. Um, he thought about them differently than we think about them today. And if you think about it, if we actually started to build, and that's something I, I always argue because I worked in the construction industry for years, and they waste like half the half the material that shows up at a construction site ends up in the trash. So they're not even, it's like one of the most inefficient uses of materials you could possibly think of to build a square box house. But if you think of all the resources we could save if we just started building 
uh, our buildings in a different way, in a more efficient way. Not everything has to be a square box. And, and when you build something a square box, obviously it's not aerodynamic. So if a tornado comes or a hurricane comes, it's gonna blow it down. But instead of learning from that, after it gets blown down, we build a brand new square box in its place. That's just gonna get torn down again when the, another tornado comes. Um, Don't they call that the definition of insanity? Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly how our entire material world has been built around. It's been around these old systems that aren't progressing at all. Like the housing industry, we've been building houses the same way for hundreds of years. But if you look at like these electronics that we're all using right now to talk to each other, every two months there's a new one that comes out that makes the old one obsolete. Like the progress is so fast that we aren't doing that in housing and in the, the places that actually um, uh, you know, keep our shelter, our, our organized shelter systems are just these backward old, old handicraft ways that if we just don't, if we don't free ourselves from that type of thinking, um, there just really won't be enough resources in the world to house everybody, even though we have more houses than people. But if we keep building things <laughs> this way, we're going to ruin all of the forest to build these houses um, for which we won't even be able to live in because we'll be dead. There'll be no forest anymore. <laughs> so... So in, in that sort of spirit of like, of, you know, projecting that logic of like continually updating technology into our actual enclosure, our environment, which yeah. is, you know, really the opposite of an, it should be the opposite of an enclosure. It should, it should be essentially open and changeable and, you know, something that adapts to our needs. You know, that's, that's our essential human adaptation. Our nature is, it, it goes from being adaptive, adapting to our environment to adapting our environment to us. And I think that's the essential sort of premise behind approaching, looking at the world in a new way is, you know, we need to stop trying to change, treat the symptoms of this, of this problem. We need to, we need to cut out the tumor of capitalism, of expansion, of endless growth. And we need to align ourselves to our environment and change the environment itself to create an environment that does away with all of these problems. And I think when I, when I, when that, when that hit me, it, it was so profound because you see the world, you see all the shapes in the world. You know, I'm a, I'm a, a spiritual person. I, I, I've always been very dissociated from this, this world. I was put on a lot of psychedelic or psychotropic drugs as a child, like prescription drugs and things like that. So I was always, you know, in my own head and my imagination and I wasn't really connected to society. And I think that has kind of predisposed me to not thinking it's normal, to being abnormal, you know, to being maladjusted to my environment and being told, you know, you're sick and you're wrong and all these things. So it's like, okay, well, what, why am I going to go out of my way to reinforce a belief in this thing that when I'm told I'm the problem, when I'm just thinking with my own brain, you know, in, in that spirit of, of, a, of an adaptive worldview. I mean, I, I, I want to talk about uh, basically like socio-cyberneering, which is Jacques' term that he was using in the 70s. And, um, Peter Joseph's term right now is if, if one of his transition steps is digital feedback. And I think uh, I just watched that amazing uh, Jeremy Rifkin uh, lecture, the, um, the Third Industrial Revolution, and he talks about the Internet of Things. And there's, I think these are, these are all kind of uh, parallel terms to describe a new way of thinking about intelligent infrastructure. I'm, I'm curious what your perspective is on that is and, and how you would ex sort of explain that as a, a, a shift in our human thinking that we really can't wrap our heads around. It's like, I think really simply, like we have the internet. We don't need all these, not just our housing structures are outdated and, you know, inflexible and 
brittle, but our power structures are, our social organizational structures are. And it seems like, you know, with the internet and with the, the nascent sort of internet of things developing and this concept of socio-cyberneering or digital feedback, we can completely rethink everything. Oof. You know, the internet of things, honestly, the more I think about it, the more it actually scares the living crap out of me. Um, um, and I think a lot of it is because we now know that the internet is probably the greatest mechanism ever to deliver advertisements, right? Like this is a, a medium that has been co-opted by corporate interests to the point where the internet now, um, like if you have an Alexa in your house, is listening to things you're saying without it even being on, quote unquote, on. Um, for which then when you now surf social media after just talking about pants, all of a sudden you'll have ads for pants, right? Like, so if we're talking about the internet of things, if we have smart fridges, smart stoves, you know, uh, smart houses, um, my immediate mind goes to the way this is going to be completely corrupted by um, uh, advertising and, and uh, profit interests. And so the more we develop this internet of things, I can see the surveillance system growing right along with it. And it's, it's, I can see more of a dystopia coming from the internet of things today than I can see any positive progress, but. What so, is the alternative to that though? What is the, the positive utilization of that? Because it seems like within the mechanism, the, the value system of profit, even medicine is a weapon. Everything is a weapon. Everything can be weaponized yeah. and will be used by the sort of recuperating mechanism of capitalism to make life more deadly and worse and increase that control system. But it's like, if, you know, if that great condition, monetary, uh, the monetary value system is cut out, you know, how could, how, how could this sort of se sense of, of a socio, socio cyberneering, uh, be implemented to, well, for good? If, if you ask Jacques about it, um, <laughs> Jacques gives an answer that is probably true, but it's unsatisfying as well. So he would say that things probably are going to have to get a hell of a lot worse. Um, before we can actually start using these technological tools in a way in which is not exploitive in this financial sense. And I think that is one of the things that scares me the most is because I think we're so close to a precipice in this world that it's going to be touch and go, as Bucky said. It's going to be touch and go whether we create paradise or oblivion um, because we're going to get right up to that precipice of uh, commodifying everything on this planet. And then by the time we realize that that is a parasitic and a cancerous way of uh, looking at the world and each other, hopefully there will be still a shrivel, a, sh a shred of time left for us to turn this around and be, as Bucky would say, the trim tab to our civilization trajectory, where we can actually turn this boat around. So I, I don't have a lot of positive. I hate to end it on like a <laughs> that you know like a dark note, but at the same time, I think we need to accept you know that we haven't gotten to the point yet where most people can hear us. And I think that we need to keep on doing what we're doing and developing uh, systems uh, personally and developing our own minds personally um, and having the talks that we're having now just to spread these ideas out more. Because um, I think there will be a time when we have a chance to turn this boat around and be the trim tab that Bucky always uh, advocated for us to be. Um, but I, I don't think we're there yet. We're close, but I don't, I don't know if we're there yet. So we need more professors like you and we need more people supporting alternate media. Yeah. Yep, that's a good way to there look at it. There we go. I was curious, how long did it take you to get through all your um, coursework and become a uh, you know, soci master's in sociology? 
Uh, it took me about 10 years. Uh, you know, if, if I would have um, done school full time, uh, it would have been shorter, but um, I was a single father taking care of my two kids, you know, doing all these odd jobs while I was going to school. So it, you know, it took me um, four years to get my associate's degree and then almost another four years to get my bachelor's degree. And then it took me two years to go to Knoxville, Tennessee and get my, my master's. So, and that was the only, the only time I was able to go to school full time was when I went to Knoxville. So. Well, congratulations. Good for you for yeah. sticking with it and seeing it through. And now, now you're in a position to be able to actually educate and help and got to, got to commend you for that. That's, that's really cool that you, that you, uh, followed through all the way, uh, to, to the, to the end now and, and, uh, and, and you get to reap the benefits of it and help other people. Amazing too. little de dedication. Well, and let me, let me just say you one thing about this because, you know, uh, when they say it takes a village to raise a child, I assure you, it took a village to raise this grad student. Okay. There's a, there a lot of people that helped me along the way for which I would not be here if I didn't have massive support from people um, that thought what I had to say and what I wanted to do with my life was valuable. So um, I was not an island unto myself. This was something I had many people help me along the way to get here. So, But I appreciate cool. that. Well, that's great for, for acknowledging that too. Beautiful. I think a lot of people don't, don't acknowledge that also, you know, when, when, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people succeed or, or go farther in life, you know, I think uh, people are kind of disposed to attribute it to their own uh, work and effort a lot of the time. But that's the, uh, what you say is exactly true. Also, a lot of us are just in the position and get the help along the way that makes those things possible as well. So that's great for acknowledging that and, and giving credit where it's due as well. I, I commend you for that, too. Do you have any uh, any kind of closing thoughts, you know, in in the spirit of um a sort of a new sociological consciousness or a new understanding or changing our minds, change our worlds. I'm not sure if I have a profound something to say at the very end <laughs> other than, you know, just that. That's not a tall order. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? But, you know, I often think about, I, I can't quote him directly, but but David Graeber did say something that does stick with me. He says something to the effect of like, the, the world wasn't always like the way it is now, and it doesn't have to be this way. We created the, this world and we can just as easily create something different. And I think we need to actually be in the mindset of, of really trying to create something different and to think of ways to bring that about. And as long as we're in that mindset, I think we're on the right track. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time, and it's been some fabulous insights. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. And, uh, yeah, we hope to have you back again sometime soon because this has been a lot of fun and um, really, really thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Thank I'd love you, to. Jeff. Yeah. Very, very I appreciate all your time as well. I mean, I really do that you all took the time to, to talk with me today. I appreciate it. This is what we do this for, you know? Like, to, to, be, able to, to be able to brain trust like this, to network our little our few consciousnesses together to sort of, you know, uh, work on building this, this thing, this change, this new brain, this human brain, not a, not an individual brain, but a human brain, the mind of humanity, you know, that, um, I, I had a, a, a Bucky quote pulled up here and, um, he, he tried to kill himself at one point in his life because he was, he couldn't make money basically. <laughs> <laughs> what else is new, right? And he threw himself into a, into the into a lake, and um, he was drowning. And he saw a, a sphere of light, a white sphere of light, a dome, you know. And it spoke to him, and it, and it said, um, "From now on, you need never await temporal attestation to your thought. You think the truth. You do not have the right to eliminate yourself. 
you know, I, I see this message at humanity, at all of humanity, because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to die because we can't give up this attachment. You do not belong to you. You belong to the universe. Your significance will remain forever obscure to you, but you may assume that you are fulfilling your role if you apply yourself to converting your experiences to the highest advantage of others. And it says he ultimately chose to embark on an experiment to find what a single individual could contribute to changing the world and benefiting all humanity. And I think really if, if we have more people that can step into that attitude, that, that understand that we're not an individual, we are a social being. We're not mosquitoes, as Arjang said the other day. We're a social organism. We, we are our environment. We are not just in it. We don't just use it. That if we can basically... We are a product of our environment. If we can basically uh, step into that ecosystem consciousness and, and identify, switch our sphere of identification, I think we'll all start surging towards solving this problem and we'll arrive at the conclusion of a better world. So that's my hope. Because when you... When you uh, see the world in a different way like i'm sure you did when you went and saw jock you saw the world in a new way or when after after seeing the zeitgeist films you see the world in a different way you know you walk around you don't you don't live in the old world that old world is gone it's you never that you'll you never see it again matrix code now <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> Absolutely. I, actually, I, I think there should be an entire sociology class of just uh deconstructing the metaphors in, in the matrix to society today like i i think we could have a fascinating class <laughs> and so much to unpack. yeah we're living in a, an illusion and um i think it, it's it seems so tantalizingly close to me of achieving this because it's just it's just getting people to see what was always there you know Getting people to see we don't, it doesn't have to be this way. It's really that simple. It doesn't have to be this way. Yep. Absolutely. We created this, this situation, we can create something different, right? So it's uh, getting to be that time again where we top off our ramblings into the uh, infinite complexity of our intractably horrible and beautiful journey through this crazy world this crazy human experience and uh i just gotta plug the uh the old youtube like share subscribe follow donate to our patreon at patreon.com slash moneyless society you know blah 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 so this has been the last episode of our first season and i gotta say personally it's been uh, an amazing journey i've learned so much personally i didn't know so much of this stuff when I first started. I didn't really know the ins and outs of RBE. I kind of faked it till I made it. And I think, and I hope that uh, other people who have watched and listened uh, have learned as I have and are as inspired as I am that this is the way to go, that there is a solution, a real solution, a holistic, integrated solution that contains all other solutions, that we have a trajectory, that we have options. That we don't, things don't have to be this way. So I lied. It's not the last episode. We have one more very special surprise that, we'll, we, 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 that we will be releasing next week. We have a lot of exciting ideas for season two, which will probably be starting early next year. So uh, enjoy this break. And um, please share your feedback. Tell us how you've liked our show. Tell us what you'd like us to talk about. Tell us if you think we talk too much. Some of us, like maybe yours truly. Uh, tell us... What you like, tell us what you don't like. Just give us your feedback. And um, 
suggest guests, tell your friends. If there's somebody you know that you really want to get on the show and you have uh, an in or an out, uh, please link it up. We will talk to pretty much anybody. We want to spread this gospel, <laughs> this secular gospel, as far and wide as we can. So we wouldn't be here without you, the listeners. It, there would be no point in, in any of us learning or knowing better if it wasn't for the opportunity to share it. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your feedback. Thank you for your support. We really appreciate it. I personally appreciate it. I have been working uh, pretty much light, night and day on activist projects and podcasts and films, not for the money system. I don't make a lot of money, so the so the Patreon donations and the support and and the the more the more tangible and real uh, support that we're not just talking into the abyss that this this stuff lands that this makes sense that 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 we're not alone in thinking that this world doesn't have to be this way we can make it better so thank you thank you thank you thank you and uh can't wait for can't wait for what's in store for y'all i have never been more pessimistic in every single existing human institution <laughs> or more optimistic that humanity can get it together and that's all of us that i have faith in us i have faith in people i have faith in every fucking stranger that i see walking down the street that even the, the most aberrant and backwards person in our midst can learn better and that's our nature we can change so take it easy but take it take it